Today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 19. And I've titled this sermon, Watch Where You Are Going. This is a phrase I am most likely to use in the car, right? Anybody use this phrase in the car? You're following somebody or somebody pulls out in front of you or they're right next to you and they're kind of creeping over that line and their mirror is about to touch your mirror and, and hopefully just enter the innermost recesses of your mind or if you're me just verbally and out loud, you, you shout out, watch where you're going. Of course, they can't hear you, but it just makes me feel better to be able to say it. Anybody else? Anybody do that? Yeah, a couple. And, and I just think, boy, if they thought like me, they'd be a much better driver. That's what I'm thinking. It's probably not true. And I can't imagine the number of times people have thought that or said that uh, because of something I was doing. But it, it used to be if you were following a car and it veered a little to the left, it went over the line. And it veered a little to the right and went over the line. You'd think, well, there's a drunk driver. And that's scary. And that could be. And that's, that's really terrifying. Today, though, what, that's not the first thing that pops into my head, drunk driver. Do you know what the first thing that pops into my head is? Texting. That's right. And, and nine times out of ten, that is absolutely the case. And you go to pass the person and you look over and sure enough, they're, they're doing one of these or one of these and you hope their knee's up at least or something. They're doing something and they are not paying attention. Their eyes, instead of watching where they're going, their eyes have fallen And this great big world out there that includes the road and the car and my car and my family maybe that's in the car, that world is, is, they're just oblivious to that world. Their world right now is this little tiny, you know, device and the internet and the update of whatever they need to verify their existence at that moment. And you think, watch where you're going. There's more going on. Lift your eyes up. And I think as Christians, we need to hear that message as well. We need to watch where we're going. Now, we're going to be in Hebrews 13, and I I do want to back up and give a little bit of context to what we're about to look at. If you've been with us, we've been in Hebrews now 24 weeks, I believe. Uh, We'll be concluding. There's this week. We'll do next week. We'll finish the text next week. And then I'm actually going to be gone for one Sunday. Pastor Al's going to be preaching. I'll come back, and we'll do an overview and review of, of the book. But just to give you a little bit of context, because every individual passage fits into the book as a whole. So the context of Hebrews is what we've been talking about, that Jesus Christ is greater than. He is greater than anything else that we might look to for salvation, for comfort, whatever it is that we're seeking to give us hope in our lives. Jesus Christ is greater than it. And the author has gone through and shown one thing after another. He's greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system, greater than the tabernacle, greater than the high priesthood of the Old Testament, one thing after another. And then we transition into, okay, now what? How do we live? And we talked a bit about that last week. At the beginning of chapter 13, we said, because through Jesus Christ, we live in the holy presence of the Almighty God. We are accepted into his presence. We are reflecting his presence. We are living in his presence. We have to live differently. His presence changes us. And so we looked at some ways that that happened. I'm just going to put this away. It's distracting me. We looked at, uh, in chapter 13, keep on loving one another. We looked at showing hospitality. And we said that's serving people, especially, I think, in this passage, when it uses the word strangers saying people outside the church, other people, 
because, as we looked at last week, maybe God is using you in that moment in a greater way than you can even imagine. We talked about suffering with others, identifying especially with other Christians and their struggles and their hardship, entering into those things with them. We talked about honoring and keeping marriage pure. We talked about in verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content. But here's the thing, and I didn't feel like I really had time to finish this up in verses uh, at the end of verse 5 and then into verse 6. We can hear a list like that, and we can leave with a whole bunch of guilt and, and pressure. A list of do this, don't do that can lead to, if you don't do these things, then you're a horrible, awful person, and how dare you show up to church, and you're the worst hypocrite in the world, and who do you think you are? And we can just feel this burden. And it's really important to get those last two quotes in there at the end of five and then into six, where it says, God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So in this context of here's how you are to live, it's with the reminder, God is always with you. If you are saved by Jesus Christ, the Bible says God has taken his holy presence and put it inside of you. And everywhere you go, God is there with you. So he says, I'm with you. Yes, I want you to live different, but it's because I'm with you. It's not so that I will be with you. Hey, if you don't measure up, man, I'm not going to hang out with you today. It's not God saying, I, I, I don't know, you better hit this mark or you can't be in my presence. It's God saying, I'm already there. And that's why you live different. But then he says, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? So there's that help. The presence of God is in us, not only to be there with us and to motivate us, but it says he is helping, or you could read enabling, the very obedience he is commanding. So we have to remember that. It is the Lord who is there with us. Today, uh, and I need to apologize, and maybe this is even better considering the fact I don't have my notes. You don't have my notes either. Uh, We had a technical glitch, shocking this today. Uh, and somehow the email that I wrote with my outline and sent to Kathy disappeared between my computer and hers, not only disappeared between there, but even disappeared from my computer. It was gone. I went to look for it. It wasn't there. So I just told her it was late in the week. I said, you know what? Forget it. So here's what you can do. If you want to take notes, pull out an offering envelope. Feel free to use it. I know that's not what they're for, and it's bad to do that normally, but it's fine today, okay, if you want to do that. Don't pull out one of the hymnals or the, the Bibles and write in it. That's frowned upon. It's, it's, uh, we're pretty giving, but that's pushing it. Um, so write on the back of your hand if you have to. Write on the back of your neighbor's hand. It's fine. So, but it was actually good because between when I sent that to her and this morning, I changed my outline. So it worked out well. So it was all good. I think it was divine providence. And now, as I said, I've... I've lost my notes anyway, so you're just going to get me off the cuff. But what we're going to do is take this passage, verses 7 through 19, and I want to go out of order. Because I want to start at the heart and soul of the passage, and then we're going to go back to the beginning of the passage and the end of the passage, and then back to the middle. It'll make sense as we do it, okay? Don't worry. Let me read the passage for us. You can read along with me. I'm going to start in verse 7, and we'll read all the way through 19. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. So I said we're going to start at the soul or the the heart of this verse first. There we go. Which is in verses 9 and 10. And the concept here and the phrase that's used is, are we, can we, should we, are we strengthened by grace? And what does it mean to be strengthened by grace? Look at verses 9 and 10. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, there's the phrase, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. So two things are being contrasted here. First is what what he's teaching. Be strengthened by grace. But he's teaching against something. A false teaching has crept into or is in danger of creeping into this church, these people. And he's warning them against this. And the false teaching is some strange teaching. He's saying this is out of line with what you've been taught. It's something different. It is not the gospel. And he elaborates on that. He says, not by eating ceremonial foods. So something was coming in. Presumably somebody was coming in, probably a Jewish teacher, and saying, look, you Christians, this is great. You're saved by Jesus. I've got something more for you. I've got a deeper spirituality, a greater faithfulness, a greater experience of your relationship with God. You need to eat these certain ceremonial foods. Now, this was a common thinking in the Jewish tradition. Certain things they were to eat or not eat as an expression of their relationship with God. But it became distorted. It became distorted because instead of being an expression of their relationship with God, it became the means of the relationship with God. I will be closer to God simply by eating this food. It's like a silver bullet. How often do we look for strength from something that if I just do this, I will feel better? What are some ways we seek to be strengthened? It might be if I just had that certain relationship. If so-and-so would just love me, then, then I will be fulfilled. If I just got that certain car, that certain device, that certain job, if, if I could just 
eat that certain diet, then I would feel better. If I could do these certain things, everything would be better. And we look for that silver bullet that will provide the fulfillment, that strength that we so desperately want. And they were doing the same thing. We might not do it in the same way, but we have the same issue. And so the author here is coming back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a gospel of grace. He says, you can't earn this. You can't work for it. You can't just have a checklist and try to find the perfect silver bullet to make you have strength in your life. You need to seek grace. Well, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. That's the technical definition of grace. Favor, God's goodness, God's favor, God looking upon us with loving kindness and affection that is unmerited, undeserved. When God looks at us, He deserves, we deserve rather, to have him treat us as his enemies. That's what scripture says we deserve from God. When somebody struggles in life and they say, I deserve better than this. It's not true. We actually deserve worse. When somebody gets something and they say something really good and they say, I deserve this. That's not actually true. When we watch commercials on TV and they say, you deserve this car, you deserve this promotion, you deserve your happiness. Scripture says, no, actually, we deserve death. We are God's enemies. That's the bad news. Grace is the good news. God, in his grace, through his son, Jesus Christ, does not give us what we deserve. He gives us grace. So the scripture here is saying, that's where we are to get our strength. When you wake up tomorrow and you wonder, how are you doing in your relationship with God? Or how are you going to face the day? Do you have a checklist? Well, I'm good because I did my devotions and and I I ate the certain food or didn't eat the certain food or I talked to so-and-so. I threw some money in the offering plate at church. Is that your checklist? Or is your checklist one thing? I'm saved by Jesus Christ through the grace of God alone. That's your strength. Because here's the interesting thing. If our checklist of strength is made up of things we do, then it's also made up of things we can fail in. When our checklist of strength is made up solely of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, that strength never fails. Are we strengthened by grace? So he's calling out to them and saying, be careful. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get so focused on your little world and your little phone or the internet or whatever it is that's going on that you're not looking up and seeing the grace of Jesus Christ be strengthened by grace. And now he's going to talk about, as we walk through the passage, how are we strengthened by grace? And one of the ways that he says is to consider former leaders. Look at verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now later on, in verse 17, he's going to go back to leaders, but he's going to talk about their present leaders. So here, if we pick this apart and we see, consider the outcome of their way of life. That phrase leads a lot of commentators, and I agree with them, to believe that the author is actually talking about leaders that have passed away. These are people that have gone before, that were examples of faith. In many ways, they could have been people straight out of Hebrews chapter 11 or even more personal examples in their own life. Could be Christians that have lost their life due to persecution or just have already died. But the author's saying, either way, consider their way of life. 
Look at them. In their imperfections, in their struggles, but look at the grace of God at work in their life. I pray you have people like this in your life. I pray you have people in your history that you can look to and say, I can consider their way of life and see the grace of God working in their life. But if you don't in your own life, and and even if you do, I want to challenge all of us to enlarge the circle of leaders that we consider as examples of grace. You see, as modern Christians, we're very short-sighted. We look at the here and the now. But our history is filled with people that have gone before us. Great heroes of the faith. Great teachers of the faith. And I believe it's important to come back and look at Christian biography. Read the stories of faith. Not to hold these people up as heroes, but to hold up the God who was at work in their life as the hero. Consider the grace at work in the leader's lives. When we get to the fall and we start the Reformation series, I'm going to be bringing in a lot of biographical information on the Reformers. Because I think it's important as we look at the theology of the Reformation to also look at the history and the biography. Each person has a story. And as we look at that and we consider their way of life and the grace at work there, I hope we can identify and say, God can do that in my life. Because I want to point out one phrase here. Look at verse 8. Jesus Christ is what? The same. Yesterday, today, and forever. You might look at these heroes in your life or, or Christians uh, of the past, and you might say, well, I, that's not me. I mean, it's just, I'm just little old me, and, and I have different struggles, and I'm going through different things, and God can't use me that way. And the Scripture is screaming out to you, you might be different, your situation might be different, but Jesus is the same the same Christ, the same grace. So if you want to be strengthened by grace, look at the strength grace gave them. Remind yourself, Jesus hasn't changed one little bit. That same grace is at work in me. That brings strength. At the end there, it goes on at verses 17 through 19. So we're going to skip all the way to the end as he continues on leadership. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. So here he's talking about their leaders right now. This is a difficult subject for me to preach on. Because it seems very self-serving. But it's scripture, so let's look at it, okay? Because it's important. Have confidence. Other uh, translations have obey. And I think that's probably a better translation than the NIV here. It's The Greek word is an ongoing obedience. I think that's why the NIV used this. I don't know. But it's an obedience based on confidence. It's an ongoing, I trust them. I know my leaders. I have confidence in them, therefore I obey them. As a church, we, I think, have worked really hard to make sure if we raise somebody up in leadership, We have put them through the hard process of evaluating them, training them. We do this with the elders. I'm working with somebody right now going through the eldership process. It is at least a six-month process of study before we bring somebody to you as a potential elder candidate. At least six months. It's hard study, hard meetings, hard prayer, a lot of conversations. We do that so that if we lift somebody up before you as a candidate for leadership in this church, you can have confidence. You can say, I, I know this person. 
I have been presented with their life and their testimony. I can read about their doctrine and, and what God is doing in their life. Because we want you to have confidence. Because we want you to be able to obey joyfully. The next word, though, takes it farther. And submit to their authority. We live in a world where leadership is held in great suspicion. That's not always without purpose. There are some issues in leadership, both inside and outside of the church, where we should be suspicious. We need to be cautious. We need to be careful about who we follow. We need to watch where we're going. Okay? And part of that is be careful who we're following. But if someone has been presented as a teacher of God's word, and their life, not perfect, but is an example of grace, and they are in submission to God's word and, and in their leadership, as we try to do as elders, then Scripture says that the challenge to the followers, that's the rest of us, all of us together, we need to obey and submit. And we don't like to hear that. We love hearing the standards of leadership. And if you want to hear more about our standards of leadership as a church, there's a whole sermon series online. There's a whole section on our website, how we choose elders, uh, why it's important to choose the right people. But that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about submitting to leadership. Usually when I talk to Christians, it's, well, I will submit with what I agree with. In other words, if you say or do what I would say or do, then I will submit to you. That's not submission. It's not. Now, I'm not talking about a leader that's out of line with the Word of God. There are times to not obey and not submit. But it's hard as a leader sometimes when you spend a lot of time thinking about something, praying about something, studying it, discussing with other godly leaders, and, and you've worked on this for days, months, years, and, and it comes before the congregation or somebody hears about it, and within 30 seconds they just go, ah, no, that's not how I would do it. You say, wait a minute, where's, where's the submission? Where's the trust? Where's the following? And it's why, as leaders in the church, we try hard to make sure we don't do that to you. If, if we need you to make a decision on something, we will give you time to think and pray and study and hopefully lead you through that process. Now, let me do what I did in the first service, which is step outside for this, of the sermon for a second. Some people here m might be thinking, wow, there must be something going on between the leadership and the people right now. No, there's not, okay? I'm not saying this because there's a problem. I'm saying it because it's in Scripture and I am bound to the Word and I need to teach this because it's what it says and we need to hear the warning and the challenge. We're fine, okay? So let me just say that. I think you guys are awesome. I, as an elder, I've been greatly encouraged. I think the other elders would, would resonate with that as well. Okay, back to the sermon. All right? Do this so their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. And as elders, I, I will tell you, we take very serious that phrase there, watch over you as those who must give an account. And we're talking about that constantly. How do we truly shepherd the people and help them to grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ? The author then in verses 18 and 19 includes himself in that and pray for us as well. He says, we want to continue to shepherd you. So we need to consider past leaders as we look at this example of grace. We need to consider and follow present leaders as we are strengthened by grace. Thank you. I don't think my, I'm just doing it and you're flipping it, aren't you? Thank you. It's a good sound guy. 
That's right. Makes me feel like I'm in control when I'm totally not. All right. We need to consider Jesus. And this is why I wanted to put this at the end. Because these bookends focus back on who Jesus is. Just as the author has done in every other portion of Scripture. He introduces a topic. He'll say some things around it that point together. And all of it points to Jesus is the greatest example. So we come to verses 9 through 16. And this is where he says, here's, here's your leaders, past and present. He says, in the middle, don't get carried away by something different than what these two groups have taught you. Be very careful. Don't let some superstar preacher come in. I saw in the news recently that this guy named Rob Bell. Any of you ever heard of Rob Bell? Okay, Rob Bell's on a tour. He's doing a tour. He's calling it the Bible Belt Tour because he's going through the Bible Belt, southern kind of United States, and he's going into theaters and he's teaching. And, and they call him like the rock star evangelical. Rob Bell is a heretic, plain and simple. Out and out heretic. Um, avoid him. Avoid his teachings. Avoid his writings anymore. I used to use his videos when I was a youth minister. He had some very interesting youth videos. He has completely gone off the deep end. But the media and many Christians are holding him up as this rock star preacher because he's saying things that nobody else says. And they're saying, oh, I've never heard teaching like this. There's a really good reason for that. Because it's heresy. He's teaching there's no hell. The Bible isn't literally the word of God. Salvation isn't what we think it is. He's totally redefining Christianity. And everybody thinks he's so cool and hip and modern. And he's just a heretic. And he stands in a long line of other heretics that have said the exact same thing. So be careful. Don't be led astray. Don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. But in this message here of being strengthened by grace, he brings up an image. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Or what in the world is going on there? Because that's one of those passages I think every good, deep, scriptural, biblical Christian should read a, a phrase like that and just immediately leaping off our tongues if we're theologically informed should be the phrase, huh? What what are you talking about? Now, what is he talking about? As with so many other things in the book of Hebrews, he's going back to the Old Testament. Specifically, I believe, to the Day of Atonement. Because he says in verse 11, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place. There was only one time in the year, the Day of Atonement, that anybody went into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And it was the Day of Atonement. And the priest would first have to sacrifice a bull for his own sins. The bull would be sacrificed on the altar, the blood of the bull taken into the most holy place, sprinkled, poured out in various areas to pay for the priest's sins. Then he would go back and he would take a goat and do the same thing for the people's sin. And the blood of the goat would be taken into the most holy place. Now an interesting tidbit that's really relevant here. Many of the offerings, many of the sacrifices in the Old Testament, you may not be aware of this, but many of them people would bring as a fellowship offering or a thank offering. They would offer the animals a sacrifice, the priest would kill it, and then they'd have a potluck. They would eat the animal. The family would sit together and eat the animal as a meal. And it was a meal of expressing their relationship with God through that sacrifice. Now, some of them, if I had done something wrong and I knew I had done it wrong and I brought an animal as a sacrifice to cover over my sin, 
I wasn't allowed to eat that sacrifice because it was paying for my sin. My sin had been transferred to it, and so I couldn't eat it because it was messed up by me. So the priest could eat those sacrifices as part of their you know, ongoing sort of payment, keeping them alive, feeding them as a priest. But on the Day of Atonement, guess who ate the sacrifice? Nobody. Nobody was allowed to eat that sacrifice. Imagine, especially for the priest, this mammoth bull. Magnificent animal, right? They had to choose the best of the best. And in this culture, I am pretty sure, I'm not a great historian, but I'm pretty sure if you had an animal and you had to butcher that animal, you're going to find every possible use for everything in that animal, on that animal, around that animal. You're going to use the hide for for clothing or for a tent. You're going to make containers out of the horns. You're going to do everything you can to get the most out of that animal. That animal would be worth a lot. And then the law says, you take that bull, and you're going to kill it. You're going to take some of its blood into the holy place. And they're probably thinking, great, what do we get to do with the rest of it? He says, you take it outside the camp. It's your garbage heap. And you burn it out there. And you can't have any of it. And they might be thinking, what a waste. None of it? We have to lose all of that stuff? And the law says, yes. Because it is so infected by your sin you get no further benefit from it whatsoever. That's what the author is referencing here. Because he's saying even the most holy people in the Old Testament, the high priest, could not eat that sacrifice. And now these people from this system are coming in and they're saying, we have a secret from you. You eat our food and you'll be more holy. And the author is saying, wait a minute, there's food you can't even eat. Now let's look at Jesus Christ. Because he says, Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. You see, the bull's body was taken out to the trash heap, the places that people didn't want to go at all. Where did Jesus go to die on a cross? He went to the place of rejection. He went to the place of the the criminals. He went to the place that if you went there, you were considered filthy and immoral and unacceptable. That's where Jesus went. He didn't stand in some royal palace and say, I'm paying for your sin here in this nice, comfy, cushy chair. He said, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to walk the way of being despised. And so the author says, why are you looking for some glorious silver bullet in your relationship with Christ? Why are we looking for something just to make us feel good? He says, consider Jesus. He went the way of rejection. Let's go to him. But then it's interesting what he's pointing out because he says, we have an altar, verse 10, from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. What was it that the Christians could eat that the high priest even couldn't? What is our sin sacrifice? What is our day of atonement that took our sins away? It's Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to say Jesus is the day of atonement. All of it pointed to Him. He took all of your sin, my sin, the sin of the entire world, took it upon Himself, died in our place. Now the Old Testament law would say that sacrifice is separate from you now. You can't participate in that. You can't eat it. You can't get any further benefit from it. And yet, interesting account in Scripture. What did Jesus do the night before he was crucified? The Bible says he shared a meal with his disciples. 
a meal that we're about to reconstruct. We're about to participate in the ongoing remembrance of that meal. And at that meal, he took bread and he broke it. And what did he say? This is my body. The body of the sacrifice. That in other sacrifices they could eat, but in the sacrifice of atonement they couldn't because they were unworthy. And yet Jesus' sacrifice is different. We get further benefit from it. Not only is our sin paid for, but we are renewed in our relationship with Christ. We have new life with Him. We have, catch it, grace. Grace that encourages. Grace that strengthens us. And so Jesus says, no, no, no. You come and you eat. Here's my body. It's broken for you. Eat. That's a symbolic representation of what He did. And then after the meal, remember the The high priest would collect the blood in a cup and he would take it and splash it inside the Holy of Holies. And Jesus said, here's a cup, the cup, the juice made from crushed grapes that looked like blood. And he said, here's a new covenant in my blood. Drink. Drink. We have a benefit from Jesus Christ that the Old Testament Jewish community couldn't even dream about. And so here he's saying, why would you go back? to find your strength in anything else when you have Jesus. Jesus. So we need to think, what is it that we're looking at? What is it that we're focusing on? Where is it that we're we're lifting our gaze to? Are we keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ? Are we watching out where we are going? Are we getting distracted? I think we all have kind of spiritual cell phones in our own life. Things that we say, oh, this is so important. I've got to respond to this right away. This is so big that's going on right now in my life. And I've got to do this or I'm going to fall apart and I'm not going to have strength and I won't make it through the next day. And God says, wait a minute. Look at my son, Jesus Christ. And there, I believe if we can truly look at the grace of Jesus Christ, we will find there's a strength available there that we can just begin to imagine. If you're struggling with Finding Strength and Grace. I want to encourage you. I just want to recommend a really good book to you. It's called Ephesians. You can look, I think you can find a copy of it. It's readily available. There are others really similar. I just like this one. Um, it's by this guy named Paul, a really great leader. And the book of Ephesians in the New Testament is a saturated book of grace. It is just filled with grace. Now, you might start and say, well, there's a whole lot about sin in here. A lot about how awful I am. You can't understand how great grace is if you can't first recognize and accept how sinful we are. We have to be strengthened by grace to say, this is what I deserve in my sin, but I don't get that in Jesus Christ. I get grace. That's the strength. Not look at me and how awesome I am. Look at Christ and what he's done for me. I encourage you to expand your reading list. Find some wonderful Christian biographies. Read about great saints of old and what they've gone through. And again, we'll look at this in the Reformation series. And again, these aren't perfect people. Martin Luther in particular, he had some really big issues in his life. And we'll talk about some of those things. But look at how God's grace used him and and transformed him. And look at what he can do or God can do in your life today. Gather with other people that will point you to grace. Too many people are trying to be Lone Ranger Christians. Get together with other people that will point you to the grace of Jesus Christ to give you strength. 
And finally, and I pray this is true of you if Orchard is your church home, but even if it's not, if you have another church home, make sure your church home is a place that declares the grace of Jesus Christ. We need to come together every week, more often than every week, and be strengthened by grace. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we are easily distracted. We are Christians with cell phones in our hands as we're trying to drive down and follow Jesus Christ. And we need to watch out where we're going. And I thank you for godly leaders of the past that we can look to and read about and be challenged by and encouraged by. And Remember that Jesus, who was present and faithful in their lives, is present and faithful in our lives. And may that give us strength, that grace that is at work. God, I pray that each person here as leaders, even right now, I pray that I would be a leader, that would be a, a symbol of strength and grace in their life, that I would teach grace. And may we follow such leaders. But God, most of all, I pray that we would consider Jesus Christ. May we accept the grace available through Him and through Him alone. May we appreciate what we have through Him that has never, ever been available in any other way to have direct access to Your holy presence, have Your presence living within us, to have our sin taken away, and to stand in the strength that only Your grace provides. And so I pray tomorrow when the people in this room wake up, may they wake up in the strength of grace when they question what they're going through and what's going on in their life, may they at least have the strength of your grace to hold on to, to say, I know my Savior died and rose again and I am saved by Jesus Christ. And may that grace give them, give them strength to face whatever they may face. And as we are about to celebrate communion now, Father, I pray, I pray that we would do so as an active declaration of trusting in your grace and in your grace alone. We pray this in the name and the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.